When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hello, this is the Red Box podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Thank you for our lovely new listeners. It seems that uh, lots of you have gone back to work and you're listening to us on the commute. Uh, so do let us know what you think. You can get in touch with me, matt.chorley at times.radio. That's also the email address if you want to come on the radio and play our hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? Very straightforward, 10 questions, loosely connected and cabinet jobs. The more questions you get right, the better the job you get. Uh, taking your place alongside our listeners and guests. Basically, if you answer 10 general knowledge questions, uh, we'll make you Prime Minister. It's as easy as that. Email me, matt.chorley at times.radio if you want to come on the radio and do that. Right, coming up on today's episode of the podcast, Keir Starmer is writing a 14,000-word essay, apparently, uh, to set out what he really thinks about things, although we're not actually expecting any policy in it. But what should his essay say? What should it be called? And what ideas should he put in it? Uh, that's the essay question that we put to Sebastian Payne from the Financial Times. He's got a new book out on how Labour lost the last election. We'll also hear from Andrew Adonis, the former Labour cabinet minister, and James Medway, a former advisor to John McDonnell, and Sienna Rogers from Labour List. They've got lots of tips for Kirsten on what he needs to do in the coming weeks, months and years. Although there aren't many years left until the next general election, of course. So that's our big thing which is coming up. But first, our columnist panel. Today, we've got from The Times, Libby Purvis, and from City AM, Annie Sylvester. Libby, let's talk about your column today, where um, uh, you, you've tackled the, the question of Emma Raducanu, who's obviously all across all the front pages. Today. I love it when something happens on a Saturday, and then the Monday papers are like, well, we're going to have a bit of that as well. Uh, so they put it all over the front pages, <laughs> as if nobody's seen the news before. Uh, but they are lovely pictures of Emma Raducanu with her, um, her trophy. But you've you've sort of tried to tackle um, men of a certain age, sort of at best patting her on the head. Yes, I suppose. I mean, I, I had to have a pop at Piers Morgan. Come on, one is only human, Matt, admit. Um, you know, it was so funny when he was sort of saying, well, actually, you know, it's because I told her to toughen up after Wimbledon, and she did, so she should say thank you, Piers. You know, it's all down to Piers that she won. But no, what I wanted to do was just sort of celebrate the absolute brilliance of very young women, you know, of teenage girls, the strength and the power and the, the fact that they're that no way are these the delicate blossoms of Victorian legend or uh, rather patronising middle-aged male or the poor vulnerable things. You know, I, I just wanted to sort of celebrate them and point out, because it was not just her, but it was it was her opponent, you know, the, the, um, the, it was absolutely extraordinary match. I mean, it was it was wonderful. It was it was kind of like like kind of mad 
combative ballet, and uh, the, the power and the power and the determination of these girls, both teenagers, was just really impressive. And there was a sort of sadness in it because who's just been banned? What group of women has just been banned from any kind of sport, any kind of education, or most kinds of education anyway, any kind of decent life? Afghan women. I was thinking, you know, look at these girls. I just hope some of them you know, perhaps now in exile, are looking at these girls and thinking, actually, yes, you know, we have power. We are not something to be protected and hidden and, and patronised. So it was in praise of teenage girls, really. I was one many, many years ago. <laughs> um, and what about this? Because this, there is something a bit odd about, tends to be middle-aged men, and the way they feel they have to talk about, write about young uh, female sports stars. Yes, and not all of them. I have to no. say. I mean, Tim Henman has been the most wonderful sort of mentor and backer and commentator on on Raducanu. He knows exactly what he's talking about. I think it's just some. It's it's the, the Piers Morgan lot. And interestingly, under the line, some commentators are saying, "Oh, this is all very dated. That battle, you know, that ship has sailed. Doesn't happen." And I think maybe in media and in very public celebrity culture, it has. But you go into any office and you will find young women being absolutely patronised in exactly that way by these older, slightly insecure men who think they're being gentlemanly, but actually they're not. So what I've said at the end is, OK, you know, open the door politely for Raducanu if you must, chaps, you know, but bow deeply as you do so, because <laughs> she's quite something that it's, you are not yet. It's a very, it's a very good uh, payoff. Andy, were you watching? Um, what, what do you make of it all? Alas, I was only caught the end of it as I was stuck on an Avanti West Coast train coming back from Morecambe, <laughs> of all places. Uh, football, a very masculine football uh, game. But nonetheless, it's a great story. Of course it is. And I'm watching how it's been amazing. My only regret is that on this Monday morning, we're even mentioning the sort of professional renter quotes. So you see no story, no matter how joyful, no matter how <laughs> smile-inducing, and feel the need to insert themselves into the middle of it. So I propose we don't speak any more of Mr. P.N. Um, because he's probably enjoying it more than anybody else is. Um, but what's really exciting, I think, is seeing a lot, a raft of, of British sports people, young British sports people, replacing the old guard. And look, everything is public perception and, uh, rather than reality, perhaps. But you look at people like Adekani, you look at people like Marcus Rashford, you look at people like Bakaya Saka and the England team over the summer. And it does give you hope that perhaps the next sort of generation of sporting heroes are not just going to be on the pitch and on the front of the red tops on the Sunday, but actually sort of speaking about things that, that might matter a little bit more than, than sports. So uh, I just thought it was a really heartwarming moment. It was so wonderful to see the newspapers, ESC, and I think, uh, as has been alluded to, at least mostly in the media, we've, we've kind of moved on from the unessentially pretty uh, vibe of this story, which perhaps would have been there 10 years ago. I mean, the main thing I talk about, she's, she just seems very nice and surprisingly normal in a way that actually very young, elite sports people and or actors, well, they, they, are quite, they are often quite annoying. Uh, in a way that she doesn't <laughs> seem to be. Um, in fact, I mean, I thought one of the big shames was, was that her parents weren't there and... Um, you know, it, it's nice that Tim Henman was there, but it, and I know it's really difficult for everyone to get into America right now, but, it, you know, it just seemed very sad that a way couldn't have been found for her parents to be there, Libby. 
Uh, yes, I mean that, that that was, you know, it was sort of Uncle Tim Henman was there <laughs> and the <laughs> coach and uh, entourage, you know. Uh, I think that that was fine. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I, th- I think we're going to talk in a moment uh, about the special relationship and the extraordinary fact that America is still keeping us all out. You know that I've got family who can't go and see a new newborn granddaughter. You know that the the the, the curious attitude which uh, which says that we are basically the playgrats of the world and uh, must not enter the sacred United States is is maddening. And I, I thought it was particularly sad, as I say, for her. But you know they were back home in Bromley celebrating at the tennis club. So uh, I think that that family is far <laughs> too grounded to be overly upset by this. But there was a great, um, over the weekend, there was a great piece by Josh Glancy uh, for uh, The Times where he talked about this, um, the, what he called the nonsensical travel ban between Britain and the United States. Mm. Um, he, he, and what's odd is that um, there's a ban on the UK and the EU and several other countries, but there are other countries that you can go to, uh, to the UK, uh, to, to the United States, by, and they've got much worse levels of COVID and much lower... Uh, vaccination uh, rates. What, what do you make of this, Andy? I mean, cause we were talking about um, earlier on to uh, Liam Fox about Boris Johnson going to the White House, having his chat with Joe Biden, and almost everybody has got a different thing that they think should be at the top of the agenda for those meetings, whether it's Afghanistan or climate change or um, uh, NATO or whatever, like refugees. Um, uh, how, how are the list, do you think, sorting out this, this travel uh, should be? For those of us who have got a holiday to New York booked at Christmas... <laughs> Uh, it's, it's quite high up the list for in the Chorley House, I can tell you. For those of us in the City of London who talk to finance institutions that keep the economy powering on, yes, I also happen to think it's rather important because they're all getting rather peeved of Zoom calls and a lot of people need to fly between New York and London. Um, but whatever Boris you know, puts on the agenda when he speaks to President Joe Biden, it will become apparent very quickly that Joe Biden is not that interested in playing the role of global leader anymore. Interested perhaps in climate change, but not too much more. You look at Afghanistan, you look at global travel, America is setting up for what has been basically a traditional historical uh, role, which is of an isolationist big player that sits across two oceans and will only get involved in things if it really has to. Really the last sort of 60 to 70 years of the outlier rather than the the norm, so to speak. And I think, you know, whoever goes to the White House is going to find a president that is far more interested in, in the 50 states than he is the, the other 200 countries of the world. What do you think uh, should be on the, on, the, on the agenda for this meeting next week, then, Abby? Oh, all manner of things. The business post-Afghanistan attitudes to China, that's an important thing. Um, I, I hate to say this, but it may be a time we have to capitalise on the capacity for charm, which our Boris does indeed have, uh, whether you like it or not. You know, I think he, he may he may be able to make some kind of personal connection there, which helps a bit. Um, just go back to the travel ban, that some of the, the richest and ponziest people I know, one family... They're going to America. They're going to L.A. because they simply have to go to L.A. And you know how they're doing it. Fortnight in Barbados first, and then you jump off. Oh, well, there we are. (laughs) 
That's the so answer. People, apparently Antigua, there was a whole piece about it yesterday in travel. You can do it via Antigua, but you just find a country which the Americans are letting people in from and you go and have a lovely little holiday there and then swan off to L.A. Uh, I think it's absurd. But no, just going back to the main point, I think there's China to talk about, attitudes to China. Um, you know, there's continuing refugee problems and, and the refugee situation here, here and in America. But there is also um, there is also just the whole business of getting a personal relationship, getting a good talking relationship. We know in the past that this has happened between individuals uh, the leading both countries and uh, it, it, Boris may be of some use here. Do you think, because uh, obviously the, the particular relationship between Boris Johnson and Joe Biden it ha- has not been great, not least because you know he was vice president to Barack Obama when he wrote that piece about his part Kenyan heritage they thought that um uh, brexit was mad they you know he was painted as you know even donald trump said he was britain's trump um do, do you think they'll ever be uh, good friends uh, andy The unique ability, perhaps, to connect with people, whether that's <laughs> whether that counts at the global top table, who's <laughs> to say? I mean, there are there are obviously areas of mutual interest, and and that is the areas in which you know Boris is going to have to appeal. I guess the point I was trying to make is that appealing to Joe Biden to sort of take the lead, and without him, nothing will happen. Without the United States, nothing on the global stage will happen. I just I don't think that's the way to go. Um, perhaps it has been with presidents in the past. But going back to the travel ban, as discussed, it is barking, but it's it's symptomatic of a, a global failure to agree a half-decent, sensible travel plan. We've still got a situation, slightly ludicrous situation, where people who live in the United Kingdom who happen to have an Irish passport are able to get back to the you know certain countries in Europe, whereas if their next-door neighbour, who doesn't happen to have an Irish passport, has to go on a UK passport, cannot. I mean, globally... None of this makes sense. And then you get to the... The UK is also, you know, by the way, guilty of a completely illogical travel policy when you look at the <laughs> amount of restrictions that are placed upon people coming into the United Kingdom. And then when you get here, well, if you want to wear a mask, it's fine, I suppose. And and sure, you can go to the football. I mean, the whole thing is barking. The policies don't fit together. We're at the end of a period of policymaking, which I, I hope we will look back on and say we probably could have thought that through a little bit more. Um, and... and for, goodness sake if there happens to be a fourth wave and a fifth wave at least we've learned from the absolute horlicks of global policies that we've seen so far as you can tell i'm quite peeved about this and actually <laughs> develop something with a degree of rationality that matches the evidence um moving forward Annie Sylvester and Libby Purvis there. And of course, you can read Libby in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... 
things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Up next, it's Keir Starmer's Essay Crisis. Let's take a trip down memory lane. Ah, the anthem that swept Labour to power in 1997. But come the next election, if Boris Johnson goes all the way to 2024, there will be people voting then who weren't born the last time the Labour Party won in 2004. Last week, of course, Boris Johnson uh, achieved quite a political uh, move by getting the Labour Party to come out against a tax rise to pay for the NHS. Then a couple of polls. YouGov put Labour narrowly ahead of the Tories for the first time since January. Other polls have got um, them neck and neck. Is that the worst possible thing that could happen for Labour? They think that it's all in the bag. Now, Keir Starmer, having not actually said what they would do instead on um, uh, the matter of uh, social care, is preparing a 14,000-word essay setting out his vision without actually any policies, we're told. It's going to be published ahead of the Labour Party conference in a couple of weeks' time. But what does he actually need to do to reconnect with those voters who deserted the Labour Party, not just in 2019, but in 2017, 2015, and 2005, and 2010, and all the other elections? Uh, in a... <laughs> uh, let's speak to a man who's been uh, there to find out. Seb Payne is a Financial Times journalist whose new book, Broken Heartlands, has been touring the north of England... Uh, to find out uh, what Keir Starmer needs to uh, do to win back uh, some of those voters. And he joins me now. Hi, Seb. How you Very well. Thanks, Matt. Thanks nice for having me. coming in. And uh, you bought a copy of your book as well. Absolutely. Nice. You have to. So what did you learn on your tour of those, those so-called red wall constituencies? What was it that meant that Labour uh, lost them? Uh, and when did it lose them? Was it just in 2019? I think that's the crucial lesson, Matt, is that this wasn't certainly an event on December 2019 when people thought because of Jeremy Corbyn's unpopularity and because of Labour's position on Brexit, these places went. Now, of course, they were the driving factors in Boris Johnson's 80-seat majority, but there's been a much longer decline that's been going on. And I think it's really since deindustrialization began that these places, the so-called red wall of heartland Labour seats, they were dominated by big employers, paternalistic, heavy manufacturing, which were unionised, which were intrinsically linked into the Labour Party. That has been declining as these places have changed. Now, they obviously went through a huge amount of pain during deindustrialization, but they've now become structurally more conservative. Their economic bases are more diverse. They're richer in many parts. You know, if you take Concert in northwest Durham, for example, which had the big steelworks there, employed thousands of men. That closed in 1980. On the site of the steelworks, 
place now is further education college, Barrett homes that are five bedroom detached places. And when you go around these places, they're not sort of like a scene out of Billy Elliot, which lots of people, neighbours still think they are. They've changed quite a lot. And I think until Labour can grasp with that, that, you know, yes, they still have their problems. They still have got woeful infrastructure and the jobs market isn't great. But a lot of people are quite prosperous and quite happy there. And that's what Tony Blair got right. If you think of that 1997 anthem you were hearing there, it was so upbeat. It was optimistic. It was acknowledging that things were getting better for their life and they could be better still. For the last decade, Labour has just been very, very pessimistic. And I think until Keir Starmer can realise that these places are not totally impoverished, that for a lot of people, life is not bad. It could be better, but it's not bad. That's what's going to need to try and convince these people back, as well as undoing the harm of the Corbyn era and the harm of Labour's position on Brexit. And the, I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? If, you're, if your policy is sort of turning up in places going, oh, it's terrible around here, isn't it? People still have pride in where they're from, regardless. Of, you know, they want changes. And you can, I mean, you can go to market towns right across the country, you know, see shops boarded up and all that sort of thing. But people still have some residual pride for it. And you said they want that optimistic uh, vision for the future. And also, it does feel like even now, t- um, uh, uh, 18 months after Kistan became uh, Labour leader, almost two years after the general election, they're still having this sort of internal conversation but they're having it externally too. You have you'll get Keir Starmer coming on the TV, coming on the radio, talking about how Labour's lost connection with the traditional Labour voters. I assume this fourteen thousand word essay will be a really deep dive into all of that. And people don't care about that. And at a time when you've got Boris Johnson, he's a very transactional politician. Boris Johnson's just saying we're going to give you stuff, and there's a big question of whether or not he does give give it to them. If you've got one person saying we're going to give you stuff over there, they're having this sort of. Um, academic, you know, uh, theoretical, abstract conversation about the, you know, the, the makeup of communities. And Boris Johnson saying, we're going to give you a bridge. Totally. And I think the last election when Jeremy Corbyn said in many of his election addresses where the society of the homeless and billionaires... That's not most people's lives. Of course, yes, we have billionaires and yes, we have too many homeless people. But that big middle class, the middle, which increasingly has dominated these red wall places, they didn't recognise that. And when Boris Johnson went to all those places that voted Tory for the first time in living memory, his message was kind of, you know, your place is great. I can make it even better. And his real upbeat narrative connected with those people because people don't want to think where they live is rubbish they like it they're proud of it you know i grew up in gateshead opposite newcastle a town that's had lots of its struggles over the years and you'll never meet a prouder people who probably hate the people of sunland and gate newcastle because they <laughs> love gateshead just so much and that's labor's problem and on that point about the internal debate look Keir Starmer's had got a lot to solve within Labour. And I think it's it's quite astounding how much internal stuff he's done over the past year in Labour. But that is the bare minimum. Labour has to be a coherent force. It needs to have strong leadership. But it needs some actual policies and ideas to win over those people. And if you take the social care stuff we've had over the past week, you know, the fact Labour's got itself into a position where it is criticising the Tories for putting £11 billion a year into the NHS, they're going to be hit with that every single week during the next couple of years and in the election saying you voted against giving more money to the NHS and this is not the first time when I interviewed Boris Johnson for Broken Heartlands in Hartlepool he outlined all the stuff he's going to do and he does want to deliver on those pledges of hospitals, nurses, public services and then come 2024 he will promise even more of those (laughs) in the future so 
it's a real bind for Labour about what you can do that counters that. And the danger is they go even further leftwards, which is where Jeremy Corbyn went, and I think takes you to unelectability in the Red Wall. Or you have to find some centre ground or some kind of form of populism that speaks to those people and it's a counter what Boris Johnson is doing. One of the things that really strikes me, speaking to people within the Labour Party, and you definitely get this looking at Twitter, is that uh, people within Labour and on the left, and they'll be messaging in, I know, because we're, when we're having this conversation, they simply cannot believe that some people like Boris Johnson. We find it whenever time we do a focus group uh, on the show, which we do once a month, and people will say, oh, I quite like him, given the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, he's a wally, he doesn't always tell the truth, but nobody told whatever, or whatever it might be. And we get all these people saying, where have you found these idiots? Uh, how can anyone possibly... And until it comes back to the whole thing that, that actually Tony Blair identified, that if you're going to win an election, you need people who were Tories to vote for you. There are, you know, And I remember Jeremy Corbyn's team famously saying that, that they didn't need any former Tories. They could reach into Greens and disaffected people and young people, and that was going to be enough. And it's just not enough. And actually an understanding of the people who like Boris Johnson and what he's offering is actually key to unlocking some of those voters and getting them to come back across. And when I spoke to Angela Rayner, the deputy leader of Labour, she gets that point as well. I think that, you know, where she grew up and her constituency, they're now natural Tory voters. You know, if you look at the demographics, Angela Rayner should be a Tory if you just looked at it um, on where she is and her background. She won't like you saying that. She did not like it when I made that (laughs) point to her. But I think this is absolutely key. And if you look at Tony Blair, you know, there were so many subtle influences. The fact that he was the son of a a Conservative councillor, the fact that he had a subtle Christianity in his background and the fact that he knew Conservatives and Sedgefield for me is the new bellwether of this country. Keir Starmer cannot get into power unless he wins back Sedgefield and Boris Johnson doesn't stay in power unless he keeps it and Sedgefield you go around it and you can see why people like Boris Johnson. He's doing things for them and he speaks to them and we have to be so careful not to get caught up in dare I say it the kind of Twitter bubble of you know just (laughs) hating Boris Johnson for everything he stands for because to a lot of people he's doing what he said he got Brexit done, although we can have a big debate about what that actually <laughs> looks like in purpose. But to most voters, he did. On public services, he's doing exactly what he said. He's building new things. He's giving money to these towns. And I think when it comes to that next campaign, he will have quite a strong narrative to say, I did what I promised. And Keir Starmer's view when I spoke to him for the book was to say, well, they're not going to deliver. But I said to Sir Keir, but what if they do? What if they do actually live it and feel their lives have changed? What do you do then? And I kind of got a bit of a shrug of the shoulders. And that really, in essence, is Labour's problem. Sebastian Payne for the Financial Times. Let's bring in some other people now. On the line, we've got Andrew Adonis, former Labour cabinet minister, former advisor to Tony Blair, of course. Morning, Andrew. Morning, Matt. Uh, we've got James Medway, former economic advisor to John McDonnell when he was Shadow Chancellor. Morning, James. Good morning. Uh, I'll ask you what your, for your advice uh, uh, for Keir Starmer in just a moment. But earlier, I spoke to Labour List, Sienna Rogers, Labour List, of course, is a website uh, for Labour Party members, uh, to get her take on how she thinks Keir Starmer's currently doing with his own MPs. Well, it definitely depends on who you speak to within the, the parliamentary Labour Party. Certainly on the left, the kind of Corbynites, which obviously are much smaller groups than the rest of the parliamentary party, they're deeply frustrated. Um, it's coming up to conference season and they are desperate to hear some policies from the Labour Party, from Keir Starmer in his conference speech. They were very frustrated and 
basically quite angry about what happened with social care. They felt as if that was really a missed opportunity for Labour to kind of seize the agenda and come out with an alternative that really would have cut through because it was an opportune moment there. You know, they're they're basically harking back to the the Corbyn era where there were policies coming out left, right and centre. And it led to this broadly held view, of course, that the 2019 manifesto was overloaded, but it did energise the party. So they want to see policy detail from Keir's conference speech. Then most of the parliamentary party are kind of in the middle of the Labour Party. They'd sort of position themselves as soft left, most of them, really natural supporters of Keir Starmer. And really, I think the mood among them is nervousness. I mean, they all think that a general election is going to happen in 2023, even 2022. And they talk about this a lot. They cut him a lot of slack because of the COVID era and recognise that, you know, he's been speaking to empty rooms and all of that. But from the conference speech, they really want to see vision and they want to see some real definition from his speech. And how confident do you think they are that there is something there? There's this big question, which we've talked a lot about on the show. Uh, you know, is, is Keir Starmer keeping his powder dry or has he got no powder? It, it feels as if people are, st- at least within the parliamentary party, most still willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. But presumably at some point, that's going to wear out if, it, if he doesn't finally show that he really has got what it takes to sort of electrify. You know, the, the, the next election, the Labour Party can't just sort of, it's not one more heave. You really need to electrify the electorate and do something, you know, startling and surprising and to really turn things around. Is there a sense that... He's only got a limited amount of time before he actually shows that he's capable of doing that. He does. I mean, especially as a lot of Labour MPs. I mean, basically, you you speak to a Labour MP, they're going to bring up the fact that they feel as if the general election is going to be in 2023 or even next year. This is their kind of main concern. They're really worried about their seats, especially if they... I mean, the under-discussed thing about the 2019 general election is that actually it could have been a lot worse for Labour. And a lot of the, the Labour MPs now sitting in the Commons have much, much reduced majorities and they're kind of in, you know, what we would describe as red wall style seats. So they're really worried about that. You know, people like um, Yvette Cooper, who, you know, people have been in the Commons for a long time now, are, are quite nervous about this general election. And I think there is just this worry that partly because of the pandemic, partly because maybe Keir Starmer is just naturally not incredibly charismatic, uh, he isn't getting across to the public who he is. And they basically see, you know, certainly the leadership team, they see if there is a general election in 2023, he's basically got three opportunities to get across who he is and what the Labour Party now stands for. It's this conference, it's, it's the next conference, and then it's the general election campaign. And that really isn't very much time at all. Yeah, when you put it like that, it really does seem um, uh, quite a short space of time. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you about, the, the sort of mood within staff. They've been laying off staff because of the, the state of the finances in, in the Labour Party. And I was struck you reported last week about an all-staff meeting, which... But right bang up to date, an all-staff Labour meeting which kicked off with, by discussing Neil Kinnock's conference speech in 1985. And you end in the grotesque chaos of a Labour council, a Labour council hiring taxis to scuttle around the city, handing out redundancy notices to its own workers. <laughs> it did. <laughs> I, can, I can reveal that it wasn't the General Secretary or anyone from the Leader's Office who said that. It was a 
a party staffer who deals with events. But yes, apparently there was a long drawn out anecdote, someone told me, um, about that uh, Neil Kinnock speech. And obviously it got staffers kind of worrying about whether Keir Starmer uh, is going to start harking back to that sort of time and start kind of addressing factionalism within his conference speech rather than kind of addressing the country and dealing with the electoral problem that Labour has. That's Sienna Rogers there uh, from Labour List, proving that Labour's still taking a slight chip down memory lane. Uh, well, let's now speak to uh, Andrew Adonis, uh, former Cabinet Minister under Gordon Brown, advisor to Tony Blair. And we've got James Medway, uh, uh, former economic advisor to John McDonnell. Uh, Seb Payne from the uh, Financial Times is with me in the studio too. Andrew, first of all, if you were um, helping uh, Keir Starmer pen his 14,000-word pamphlet, uh, what would be your advice to him? Well, I don't know what's in Keir's pamphlet, but I think I'd probably just send them Seb Payne's book. And in particular, <laughs> I'd send them, because maybe it's more than 14,000 words. I don't know how long Seb ended up at, probably more like 100,000 words. But the excerpt in your great newspaper on Saturday, the long excerpt in The Times on Saturday, which gave the big interviews and the big arguments, I think should be essential reading for all Labour figures who actually want the party to be a party of government and success in the future and not a party of catastrophe and defeat, which it has been since Tony Blair. The two things I would particularly latch on to are the importance of good, dynamic, charismatic, positive leadership. Labour has not had an effective leader since Tony Blair, and it's no surprise, therefore, that it's lost every election since Tony Blair. A big part of... Um, Seb's book is about the importance of Boris Johnson as a leader. It's my view from being in politics for 30 years that you can sum almost all uh, political success and failure, you can sum it almost all up in the leadership given by the person who is the leader of the party at any given time. It's no accident that Labour won uh, the only three victories that it's uh, had in the, in the last 45 years under Tony Blair, who is its only leader who was more successful than the Conservative leader of the moment. And it's no accident that we've lost four elections in a row since uh, Tony Blair stood down in 2007, when all of our leaders have been worse than the Conservative leader of the time. The second issue is the, uh, which is uh, ought to be a subject of big debate inside the Labour Party is where Labour goes as a political force in the wake of the two forces that Seb identified of deindustrialization and Brexit. And the bit where I part company with him on is that he thinks Brexit was a cause of Labour's decline. I'm very clear that it was a symptom, not a cause. Brexit was itself, in the hold it took on large parts of the Midlands and the North, a symptom of Labour's dual crisis of deindustrialization and not having a plan for these regions in the future, and Labour's lack of leadership. Jeremy Corbyn, who's the most disastrous uh, leader of the Labour Party since George Lansbury in the 1930s, uh, who very, very fortunately never got to fight an election or Labour might have vanished entirely as a political force before the Second World War. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn himself was a Brexiter who was forced to compromise with anti-Brexiters like me in the Labour Party and had no plan whatever for reversing deindustrialization and and the new generation of jobs. You could also make the case that Keir Starmer put forward a second referendum. He was the architect of Labour's policy of promising a second referendum and that didn't exactly fly with uh, voters either. Uh, that actually um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn had... Um, 
you know, on, on the question of Brexit was possibly more, ironically, was possibly more in tune uh, with some of these photos. I just want to ask you, because you were talking about Tony Blair. Um, it was it was late one evening uh, back in early July, I tweet, I think, uh, Andrew, that you tweeted, bring back Blair. I wondered how your campaign to, to bring back Tony Blair was going. Do you, do you think Labour would be doing better now if Tony Blair was leader of the Labour Party? Oh, yeah, I think if Tony Blair was leader of the Labour Party, we'd be competitive with Boris Johnson for winning the next election. Indeed, I'd love to see Tony stand in Sedgefield, which I think he would win back for Labour with, uh, with a big uh, charismatic and vision thing for the whole future of the North East. On this point about, I, the point about Brexit is quite important because uh, I think Seb is himself a Brexiter, so I think he's slightly coloured by that. No, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang uh, on. Seb is shaking no. his head on this. That's not... But, but anyway, whether he, can, he can reply to that in, in, in a moment. <laughs> But, but the point about it is it's the leader. If you follow his own logic, it's the leader that matters. So the fact that Keir Starmer may have had a different position from Jeremy Corbyn doesn't alter the fact at all. The reason why Labour crashed and burned in both 2017 and 2019, and remember, it did really badly in 2017 too, where it was still 100 seats fewer than Tony Blair had been in his last election. The reason it did really badly was because of the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, who on this big issue of Brexit in the 2019 election abstained. He didn't offer leadership for, he didn't offer leadership against. He said if there was a second referendum, he wouldn't take a view. Oh, okay, but let's but get... But Boris get... Johnson out there with a clear <laughs> view and Jeremy Corbyn out there with no view. Is it a surprise that Labour crashed and burned? Well, OK, Andrew, Andrew Dodis there. Let's let's jump to the other side of the argument then. James Medway, you were an advisor to John McDonnell uh, yes. in exactly that, that Corbyn era of the, of the Labour Party. Let's try and look a bit more forwards rather than rerunning the, um, the the ins and outs of 2017. What would you be saying to Keir Starmer right now uh, so that he does better at the next election uh, than Jeremy Corbyn did at the last two, that Ed Miliband did at the one before that? Um, what does Keir Starmer need to do? What does he need to put in his 14,000-word essay? What does he need to put on his, um, on his pledge card? Uh, James Medway. The 14,000-word essay, I'm sure, will be interesting, but it's an internal party thing. And as we've just had the discussion here, there's a little bit too much sort of backward-looking and harking to the past. I mean, it's absolutely right, as people have said, that Labour needs to be a party that looks to the future. And I think on this instance, this is where I disagree with uh, uh, Seb, whose book, by the way, sounds really brilliant, and it it sounds like much of which I'd I'd agree with. But the fact that Labour got itself to a position of being able to say, we are the party that will not be looking to put up taxes on people who work is a very good, solid base to build on. The problem Keir Starmer and the leadership had was then not saying what you do instead. So my advice to the the conference speech, and it is one of the few opportunities you get as an opposition party leader to speak pretty directly to the country, is he's got to do something big, he's to do something counterintuitive. He's got to say, OK, the Tories now the party that's going to promise to spend in the NHS and actually they're putting some money into it. We're going to be the party that looks after your pay packet. That means we're going to tax the wealthy, not workers. And if you want to be really bold, you come out with some tax cut that Labour could chuck in there and dare the government to go anywhere near it. Uh, James, there's been some speculation about uh, Keir Starmer possibly using the Labour Party conference in Brighton in a couple of weeks' time to sort of do a Kinnock, as we were discussing, you know, take on the left, you know, maybe vow that Jeremy Corbyn will never be allowed to come back in, maybe take on some of the people that that, that, uh, were in the shadow cabinet when you were advising uh, the Labour Party. Do you think that'd be a smart move to sort of have that defining end of the Corbyn era, era sort of you know, moving back to the centre, reassuring voters that things have changed? Is that a smart way to, to use the Labour Party conference? No, even Neil Kinnock himself in Labour lists just a, a couple of weeks ago said this would be a bad idea. And of course it is. Look, people don't <laughs> want Labour to be rowing amongst itself, picking on groups that frankly nobody 
heard of, which happened, you know, a couple of months ago now. They want to have a vision for the future and what you're going to do about the future. Facing this Conservative Party, which is not the austerity party of uh, George Osborne and David Cameron, it's the supposedly anti-austerity party of, uh, of Boris Johnson. Facing this Conservative Party, and it worries me if, if Keir Starmer is saying, well, we'll just wait for them to not deliver on their promises. What if they do? Facing this Conservative Party, he's got to be bold and he's got to do something a bit counterintuitive. Let's say Labour is a party that looks after working people, more rights at work, better pay. And if that means a tax cut for working people, then so be it. That's what Labour's going to do. Plenty of ideas there. That's James Medway, there, former advisor to uh, John McDonnell uh, and Andrew Adonis uh, joined us too. We've had so many of you have been messaging in. The first thing Labour needs to, the first thing that Labour needs to accept is that having the leader it wants and having the <laughs> having the electorate, having the leader the electorate wants are not the same thing. That says uh, some Dwight. Uh, Kathleen uh, uh, gets it to say, just to let you know, Matt and your guests, that's you, said Payne, uh, you don't need to be very left-wing to not like Boris Johnson, where ex-Conservative voters don't like anything he and his government stand for. Uh, and then Kate says, Starmer's problem, he's not actually uh, a politician. Uh, he rests on his DPP lawyer reputation. He's now writing the equivalent of a judge's opinion, like you see in the Court of Appeal. He's too ponderous and far too slow for good political action. But actually, said Payne, the one thing to take away from the last half an hour, I think, is that the Labour Party is still fighting amongst itself. Uh, the, um, we are far, so far from the Labour Party, you know, the wings of Andrew Adonis and James Medway, agreeing on basically anything, still squabbling about the people's vote or 2005 or 1997. Keir Starmer isn't even the most interesting voice of the Labour Party. Totally, and I think that's the thing he has to do at this conference speech, really, is to try and draw a line under this factional infighting and just take hold. You know, he's got a big mandate to be Labour leader. He's got a shadow cabinet behind him. The parliamentary Labour Party are behind him. So he needs to seize on that. And I think that comment from your listener is right, Matt, that Keir Starmer came into politics quite late in life in 2015. He'd been a lawyer and a public servant for many years before that, unlike Tony Blair. And I think Andrew Donis's comments are really interesting. But, you know, Blair was of that moment. He was of 97 to 2007. And it would be fascinating to see if he did go back to Sedgefield and could win it. Like It would be quite the political comeback. But you do have to think what was relevant then might not be relevant now. And the same with Jeremy Corbyn. You know, this is a different moment in the post-Brexit, post-Covid era. And that's what he needs to think about, not hark too much backwards. Because otherwise, we'll be having this same argument until 2024. <laughs> That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.